Hi, and thanks for downloading that B-Word podcast. This is your beautiful bipolar host, Becky. Thanks for joining me again, guys. I really appreciate it. So yeah, not a lot has been going on with me for the past week. Um, every, uh, my added medication, the Wobutrin, seems to be working out fairly well so far. No side effects or anything like that. So hopefully, I mean, it's supposed to um, negate some of the current side effects of my current medicines. So hopefully it'll do that. I don't see any really negation of them yet, but we'll see. Other than that, things have been pretty good. Pretty good. So for the news this week, there are a couple articles that I wanted to get into. One is entitled Air Pollution Linked to Bipolar Disorder and Depression in the nationalgeographic.com by Sarah Gibbons. And according to this article in the United States, the counties with the worst air quality um, had a 27% increase in bipolar disorder and a 6% increase in depression when compared to the national average. And I just think that's a crazy increase. I mean, 27% is quite a bit. (laughs) Um, It doesn't really go into say why they think that is other than the fact that, um, as I've talked about before on the podcast, nature seems to be a good treatment for anxiety and depression and the city's air quality um, is a good measure of how much nature they have available, right? So, so the psychological benefits of being in nature already being firmly established, we basically just do our brains a favor by sitting in the under a tree for a couple of hours, right? The second article that I wanted to talk about is not something that you'd find in the DSM or anything, but it is a um, something that I've been interested in for a little while now, um, and that is the five different types of borderline personality disorder. Um, like I said, it's not something you'd find in the DSM, but according to um, a Dr. John Oldham, um, there are actually 256 different official versions of borderline personality disorder. Um, but to make things a little simpler, they, he proposed a theoretical model of five different types of BPD. Um, otherwise, you just get lost in the different combinations, right? So the five different types are, first off, effective, and that is characterized primarily by emotional dysregulation. Um, basically, you can't control your emotions. Um, if you, and you fre- frequently experience intense mood swings throughout the day. Um, people with this effective type of BPD struggle most with regulating their emotions when it comes to interpersonal relationships, and relational stress will uh, cause them to uh, begin to struggle. There's a quote here. It says, what most people are able to brush off is just for an example, an unimportant comment often sends me into despair, according to uh, mighty contributor Morgan Rondinelli. And I think that that is definitely uh, 
something that I can relate to. I feel like, I feel like there's a couple of these I can relate to actually. Uh, but that's definitely something I can relate to is the, uh, interpersonal relationships, um, being difficult. That's a uh, difficult, probably too, too tame of a word to use there. <laughs> but, um, I didn't want to say fucking hell. So <laughs> type two, um, is impulsive. Um, if you've ever struggled with impulsivity, according to the doctor Oldham, Oldham, then you are more likely to be this type. So people with impulsive BPD are more prone to struggle with behaviors like self-injury, substance abuse, binge eating, reckless driving, risky sex, and compulsive shopping. So that I think there's a little bit in each of these that I can relate to. And I think that most people with BPD could relate to a little bit of each of these, but I think they're just trying to determine what is most prominent in the disorder for each individual person to kind of make type the typing easier. Honestly, like I said, it's not in the DSM or anything. So, um, what good comes out of the different types, I don't know, other than knowing yourself a little bit better, I guess. But that's impulsivity. Type three is aggressive. Um, that's the one, that's the uncontrollable anger aspect of BPD. Called inappropriate because the scale of the anger often seems disproportionate to the circumstances. Aggressive behavior in the third type of BPD PD can either be a temperament or a secondary response to trauma from childhood. That's something that I think my husband could probably say <laughs> that I would relate to. Um, at least in my pre-medication days, I definitely had some of that um, rage going. And whether... It could be either the bipolar disorder or the borderline personality disorder, honestly. Um, I think because it's treated and because it got better, it's probably more related to the bipolar disorder. Um, that's just my guess, though. The fourth type of BPD is the dependent type. Um, basically, this is one where you might be called clingy, um, you hate being alone, or struggle with knowing who you are outside of others uh, without relating to them in some way. Um, people with this type of BPD often weren't encouraged to become independent and autonomous growing up, and so they are left with overly dependent behaviors in adulthood, difficulty setting boundaries and things like that and they might cling to their loved ones. It also says that people with this type of BPD might co-opt the personality traits of others, which I think that a lot of people with BPD struggle with. So that could mean having a personality that's more dependent on traits you pick up from other people. And the fifth type is empty. Now, this is weird because a lot of the times I've seen um, what the fifth type would be what they call quiet borderline, and this is saying that it's empty borderline. 
in this particular type, the primary thing that the person would struggle with would be um, the feeling of emptiness or, or you know, chronic feelings of emptiness or um, even kind of loneliness. Um, emptiness, I think, is kind of a misnomer, but it's the best way to describe what's going on. It's not just emptiness, because that would mean nothing, and it's not nothing. It's definitely painful. So according to this type, um, you may have grown up in a difficult home situation, and as a result, you might struggle to feel trusting of others and might feel directionless in terms of setting personal goals. So that's the news for today. Um, it's a little bit short, but that's okay. I thought it was some interesting information, especially about the BPD. So my interview today is with Michelle, and this also was recorded quite a a while ago, so you might hear some dates that don't quite make sense. Um, So that's why. Um, But I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I have Michelle on the line with me. Thanks for being with me, Michelle. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Becky. Oh, of course. So I know you that you've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how you became to be diagnosed and your story there? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually, I immigrated to the States when I was nine. And so I've only recently um, been able to process the trauma of, uh, of immigration because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things that I felt not worthy to recognize because there, I know there, one, it's something that people always tell you, you should be grateful for, (laughs) you know, and two, um, there are refugees who've seen like witnessed firsthand the horrors of war and, you know, other terrible things and they're escaping it. And so it's like when they have that kind of experience, how can I just say my straight immigration story is, one of trauma as well, but it was, you know, like mm-hmm. now as an adult, as you know, processing and therapy, like, it, you know, it, it is traumatic. Oh yeah. Because, I can imagine, especially as a child. Yeah. I, you know, like I was nine, I had my whole family support system on my friends and, you know, it's not like my parents were prepared to immigrate. Like they had filed the paperwork 10 years prior and forgotten about it because that's how long it takes you know and uh, and then like so they didn't know if it would go through or not so then when it suddenly went through and they were notified they just had a decision to make like do we go or do we not and so and so they were like okay we're gonna go we're gonna do this so then like I think it was like within a month like just like really fast it felt really fast a month or two like we packed up our entire lives in Korea and immigrated to the States. None of us had been outside of East Asia, you know? And so like we had never been to the West, never been to the States. None of us spoke English. Um, and that was traumatic, you know, like everybody looked different, you know, um, I couldn't communicate. Like I was, had always been a social child and all of a sudden, like I couldn't communicate with anyone, you know, at, at school. And, yeah, that, that was, that was really hard. And my parents too, like went through a tremendous change themselves, right? A shock, like, cause in, mm-hmm. in Korea, my dad was a really like well-respected member of the community. He was, um, a counselor at the school and it's a tight knit, um, community of Chinese people in Korea. And so, 
Um, and my mom was a stay at home mom. And then when we moved to the States, like we suddenly had nothing, you know, my dad was a cook in Chinese kitchens and my mom was busting tables and, you know, I was nine and my brother was six and we were home alone a lot. Um, while my parents worked, like, you know, we had an apartment that was like pretty secluded from anyone and like, um, and with no furniture and, you know, like I remember, you know, and, um, and then we moved around in the States all a country within that first year before we finally settled, um, and bought a restaurant of our own. And, uh, and so it was definitely a non-traditional childhood. And, um, and I, as someone who desperately wanted to fit in, um, just tried so hard to learn English as fast as I could and without an accent, because I didn't want anything to like give me away as more foreign than I am, you know? And, uh, and I, and I did like within two years, I was, I was out of the English as a second language program. And then my parents put, you know, tremendous pressure on, on me, um, and my brother to do well because they're like, we gave up everything to move here, you know, and it's for you. And so you like, you know, not only was I working all the time at the restaurant, like I had to take care of my brother and make sure I got perfect grades. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was tremendous pressure. I was doing a lot of business work for my parents because they didn't speak English. I was their translator starting like I was, you know, when I was 12 and, um, you know, calling and negotiating leases and disputes on the, about, you know, phone bills and mutual funds and stuff like that, that like normal 12 year olds and 13 year olds don't deal with. Right. (laughs) You know? And so, um, the anxiety got too much to handle like pretty early on. And I was at a really early age, not sleeping because I was so anxious. I was like, I called myself a worry wart and because I just had so many worries that were keeping me up because I didn't have the vocabulary or the understanding of like what I was going through, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, and I had depression, severe depression at like sixth grade, (laughs) you know, like I remember like not like missing school for several days because of, I was just like, not sleeping, depressed. I just felt sick, you know? And, um, so yeah, it started pretty early and it only got worse as the pressures got greater in high school. And I knew it wasn't normal in high school. I started experiencing mania and hallucinations, um, from lack of sleep. And, uh, and I begged my parents to take me to see a professional, but they were so caught up in what the world would think like the, you know, the stigma, lies within American society in general but like for I think you know at least in my experience my parents definitely have extra (laughs) you know they have extra stigma they had just like tremendous fear also they were uh not trustful of um not trusting of the system you know because it's not their home country so they they thought that if I they took me to see a psychiatrist uh in where we lived that it would somehow end up on my permanent record and prevent me from getting into college. Uh-huh. And that would mean ruining my future, you yeah. know? And like, and then if word got out, I wouldn't get married, you know, I would. And so then that's like, that would be ruining my life. And so they, they could not jeopardize that. Um, and so I just continued to suffer alone. Um, and until like it got really bad. Um, and my dad finally, 
took me to see someone. He drove us eight hours across state lines to a to a bordering state. Oh, wow. <laughs> he drove me to California um, so that he could we could talk to someone off the record. It was the younger brother of a like childhood friend from Korea of my dad's. <laughs> so this was the extent that my dad's, you know, stigma <laughs> had like he felt he needed to protect me. And we waited until the office closed. Um, because, you know, it was like so hush hush, like you would think like we're doing something like super illegal, but like all I was, was like a 16 year old asking for help, you know? And so, um, yeah, we waited until everybody left the clinic and it was just me and the doctor and he was, you know, he was this like handsome young doctor. And I was so happy because I was like, oh, I'm finally going to get help. Like finally somebody's going to hear me out and I don't have to suffer alone anymore. And I like first opportunity I've been like really given to talk to someone who I thought would know what they're, what I'm experiencing. So I told them everything. I like, you know, this was, you know, dating myself, like Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, like that movie, I thought that was the plot of my life, you know? (laughs) And I was like, the radio was talking to me directly. Like I was, you know, having all sorts of hallucinations from not sleeping for so long and, um, like severely depressed and how stressed I was about school and everything. And like, he listened really well. I was so excited at like what I was gonna, like, I'm finally going to get help. So after he listened patiently, he calls my father back into the exam room. And then I'm like waiting for like, okay, like bracing myself almost like this is going to be the first step to me getting help. But like, also I'm going to like, it's going to be scary finding out what's wrong. And then he turns to my dad and says like, she's fine. She just has an overactive imagination. Oh, wow. And of course it just like broke me, (laughs) you know, because it just completely invalidated, um, years of suffering and my ongoing suffering, right. As like, I just have an overactive imagination, you know, and this is a guy with an MD, you know, like he, he wasn't a psychiatrist. He was just a family doctor, but like I, he was like, all my hope that I had, I had hung on him like in that moment and I was just completely crushed. And so, you know, of course, like it was probably exactly what my dad wanted to hear, you know, because he wanted to continue to be in denial. And so I didn't get diagnosed until um, in college. I won this really prestigious scholarship because, yeah, all this time I'm getting like, you know, I graduated top of the class, won all these scholarships and, um, I was studying abroad as part of the scholarship in China um, when 9-11 happened soon after I arrived. And so, of course, that was traumatic for a lot of people, you know, right, all yeah. Americans. Yes, but like a lot of people. Um, and and uh, and so it was cold. It was, a, you know, a new environment. And I was stressed out about school. And I, you know, was... I was depressed, you know, and, uh, and then, um, my dad, you know, they've always had such high expectations of me, you know, and so they never knew when to stop with the asks, you know, Mm -hmm. and they, I felt like they never, you know, I think they just have so, such a high opinion of me. Like they just, they just think that like, no, Michelle can do anything. And so (laughs) they never took no for an answer. And so I was in China in my dorm room already like stressed out, 
too much, you know, like I'm like, I'm already at the brink, you know? And, mm-hmm. and my dad was like, you need to go to this other province, take an overnight train, go to this other province. And I, you know, I'm 20 years old. Like I've never been to China before really, you know, and he wants me to take an overnight train by myself to another province to, um, run an errand for him. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and I'm like, my finals is this week. I have all these like my favorite final papers this week. And I'm like, I just, I just can't, there's only week left before the program ends. And my dad is like, well, that's why you need to do this now before you're coming, before you come home. And I'm like, I can't. And he's like, you must like only you have to do this. You have to do this for me. And I remember hearing him like, you have to do this for me, you know? And like, and I remember like kind of in that moment, like, like I got off the phone and kind of snapping. Like I just went from severe depression into like snapped into mania. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was like the, the worst, you know, episode I ever experienced. So I was like manic. I took all my cash and I did, I took an overnight, I ran to the train station at like 2 AM and, uh, and I did what he asked. And I, uh, I like it was actually like buying something from another university like and it was a really weird situation to begin with like just confusing for all parties involved like why this random person wanted to buy it was these instructional DVDs you know and um, <laughs> um I made it back to my dorm room at my university like I feel like it's a miracle that I did because I was completely out of my mind um and I had like I lost most of my cash and um oh, it no. just um really lucky that I made it back and um and back in the dorm room you know the students that were in the program it was a small program they saw how I was they saw you know and they knew something was wrong and they notified the program director who called my dad to come get me you know and so it's always been an interesting relationship where like they put a lot of pressure on me but they were always there to also catch me when I fall Mm -hmm. which is like a very confusing um, place to be in. Um, and it was actually, I'm grateful for that situation because when I was back home in Arizona, um, they, like my high school, they knew like it's when I'm, when you're manic and depressed, of course, the teachers and other students know, like my high school nickname behind my back was psycho, you know? Um, but Mm. they always swept everything under the rug because I was such a high performing individual. Like I was a star student and I was doing like a ton of extracurricular activities, you know, really well. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, Oh, everything's fine. You know, like even if they're like, okay, it's not fine, but look at, you can't argue. (laughs) And, and also my parents being immigrants who didn't speak English very well. Like I think the parents and, or the teachers and the school administrators were like, more um they found it that it it was more appropriate for them to look the other way because they're of like maybe it's just you know cultural sensitivity you know (laughs) you know and Mm -hmm. they just they're just like they're just different from us you know and so um I did not go to a very diverse school and so so but but in China the story is different right like this program director is like there's something wrong with your daughter <laughs> you know like none of the none of the students in the program knew me and knew me as like this high performing individual like you know like knew who I like who had I've been when I am not 
unwell and so they're they weren't like just be like oh she's just having a hard time they're like oh there's something wrong with Michelle you know and so right, yeah. um so like yeah I was finally like taken to a um a doctor put on anti-psych meds and then when I was brought back home I was hospitalized um and uh put on a mood stabilizer like you know the first psychiatrist I had thought maybe I had um just a ma- major major depressive disorder but he put me on antidepressants and I had a, another manic episode. And so then he was like, okay, it's bipolar. Right. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so, um, so yeah, that was, that was all, you know, by like age 20. And I thought at that point my life was over, you know, like if I had believed in, in everything my parents had told me up until that point about like what it means to have a mental illness, then it's like, what's the point of going on? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I took, I had to take a semester break from school, from college. And I was like, does, does this mean like, it doesn't matter that I've had worked so hard for my perfect grades and all this, like, does this mean like my life is over from this point? Like, am I ever going to go back to school? Am I going to go to grad school? Like, am I going to have a life? I wasn't sure, you know, and I was so daunting. And like, I looked for books at the library um, of I try to find anyone that, you know, to to see if there's anyone out there who I can hold up as an example of like, here's someone who lived with bipolar disorder and lived well and a a, a relatively normal life, like who's not a tortured artist like Van Gogh or, you know, like, you know, like, cause I, you know, like I'm artistic, but I'm not, I don't want to be a tortured artist. Like I don't want to be a statistic that died by suicide, you know, like, and so then, then does this mean like a happy life is even possible for me? And um, I couldn't, I honestly couldn't find anything at the time. This was, you know, like 2000, 2001. And um, actually to this day, like I still don't see any that have the Asian American lens or an immigrant lens, you know, Um, which is why I felt like I am finally in the position to share my own story, which is why I'm on your podcast now. Thank you for having me, Becky, again. Of course. You know, and like I'm writing my own book because I want that book to be in the library shelf when there's another young person like me in that same point in life, like grasping for strength, you know, and for encouragement. And um, and I I want my story to be available um, because I did go back to college and I graduated senior of the year and summa cum laude, you know, like, yes, you know, it was hard at times, but like I was, I've been medicated. I've never, you know, like since I was diagnosed, like never gone off medication without, you know, like I've always been on treatment, you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. and my parents actually for years tried to me, talked me out of taking my meds, even though they saw me at my worst because they were still denial in denial for years. Like they just did not want to accept that their daughter has a mental illness, you right. know, and, and which I really think is a harmful way of thinking that I wish I could change about my family. And like, you know, if anybody else in the greater community has that sort of thinking, because it's like, I know they want the best for their daughter. I'm a parent now also, but it's like, you can't risk their life now. Like they might not make it out of now <laughs> if you don't get them help now right yeah because of you might be afraid of stigma in the future there won't be a future for you to worry about you know (laughs) like because it's like bipolar disorder is a life-threatening condition you know like I don't want anybody to think that 
denial you can get out of it with denial like that only leads to worse things like self-medication and other things that can like spiral your life out of like more control like you know I I'm really grateful that I accepted treatment like earlier on like I had people in my life who like help me and I like I recognize that there's something it's a medical condition you know and um, yeah yeah, so like I graduated college successfully I went to grad school um, got my MBA like I had a successful career in nonprofit and you know a really coveted job in a very prestigious company uh, corporate company as well for several years and I'm happily married I'm like you know really in love and you know I've been married uh, almost 10 years and I have a beautiful child who like just is such a joy to co-parent you know and and um, like all this like I wasn't sure was going to be possible when I was 20 right and it's like I was like I just want to say like if it's possible for me it's possible for you you know like just I just want everyone to practice self-care and have a dedication to their wellness and their treatment and like know that there is hope. Definitely. Definitely. It's, it's really heartening to hear that you've done so well for yourself. Thank you. uh, Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So what the, what now your book's just going to be a memoir. Is that what your book's going to be about? Yes. My book is a memoir. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want it to be relatable, you know, um, I know there are a lot of really good books out there, um, on bipolar disorder, um, you know, memoirs, but like, um, they, I, I, I want, you know, my book to be, um, have that person of color lens as well, the immigrant experience lens, because I don't see any that are out there that quite have that. Um, and also I feel like my story, like for me, is relatable for a younger audience, a a general, more broader audience, because like I didn't have um, a lot of other, like my diagnosis is bipolar one and that's it. Like I don't have an eating disorder or, um, or like addiction or, you know, like, uh, um, like, or, you know, or sex addiction, like a lot of these other things that I feel with these memoirs that I've read and found really helpful. But like, I think those, those ones um, were kind of a result of like self-medicating and trying to, um, you know, self-soothe like with mm-hmm. other other activities that like did not ultimately like end up serving them well in life, right? right. And so, um, so for me, like I didn't like I I just want to show that there's a different story out there because the media um, really just has a really negative picture (laughs) paints a really negative picture of a person living with mental illness. Right. And so I'm like, no, I'm a normal, I'm a normal mom. I'm a normal suburban mom who like has a great job and, you know, and like have done well for myself. I'm really happy. Like if you just saw my Instagram, you know, like, and my Facebook, like my social media, like you would, you know, like you just think that I have an enviable life. And I do, I'm like super grateful for my life. And so when I came out, so many people are shocked because like I'm, I had, this is something that I hid. It was a skeleton in my closet Mm -hmm. for nearly two decades, you know? And, and I know there are so many people hiding like me because why would you come out if, you know, if you can get away with not letting people know when the stigma, when the stigma and discrimination is so strong, Right. You know, and so like if you have nothing to benefit by coming out yourself, it's it's like, you know, because it's scary, because you are like 
um, struggling with so much internally already. Like I myself hid for 20 years. So I have like, you know, no, no, like no blame, like all the empathy for people who not, who are not coming out. But like, because I am where I am today, I feel like I am in the position to be able to become a mental health advocate. You know, I, and, and, and share my story. And another thing that has um, given me the strength to come out is I've been um, facilitating a bipolar support group for uh, my local chapter of NAMI, mm-hmm. um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And, uh, and like, you know, I've really found my tribe of other people who live with bipolar disorder. And, you know, for years we've been sharing our stories with one another and our stories of, you know, experiencing stigma and, dis- and discrimination and, and just like, I've just learned that everyone is so different, right? Like everyone has such a different experience, even though we have the same or similar diagnoses. Right. And, um, and we all react to medication differently and we all um, respond to treatment differently, but it's like everybody is doing the best they can, you know? And, um, and it's like, so that like slowly built me up to be like, no, I can actually advocate for like my, not only myself, but everybody who everybody that, you know, that I'm, that I'm, I'm around who, you know, because it's like, I just want to, you know, to share that there's a different story. And so like, um, there's a Lindy West quote that I love that says, you can't advocate for yourself if you don't admit what you are. And so I just came to, you know, really came to, it came, it resonated with me because, you know, at work, people would say really insensitive things, you know, to me without realizing I live with bipolar disorder, Mm -hmm. like say things like, Oh my boss, she's acting so crazy. She's so bipolar, you know, or like even just dumb things like, Oh, the weather is bipolar, you know, or, and, and it's like, or, or schizophrenic or anything like that, you know? And, um, in those moments, I always found myself just climb up in the past, Mm -hmm. you know, and climb up and feel so small. Right. And, um, and I'm finally decided to take my power, you know, like to see, you know, take back my power. And like, as like, but you know, uh, now I can say, Hey, like I, I live with bipolar disorder. I've lived with bipolar disorder for two decades. That's not how it works. <laughs> you know, like, That's not how it looks like, you know, like, um, just as right. you wouldn't call anybody a retard now. Like I think people have vastly under, you know, understood that that's wrong. Like right. that should be the same for terms like crazy psycho, you know, bipolar, like, and, and now I can be an advocate because I am now standing in the light, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I'm so glad that you are now. Cause that's, I know to me, it's just a, a more honest way to live. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it just it feels better when definitely. you don't have to hide it at all. Hide it all. So, I I've definitely gained a new sense of confidence and yeah. self assurance, and um, you know I was way more tongue tied before. <laughs> you know, like, you know, not that I have you know say think that I'm a most eloquent person now, but it's like before I I just yeah I just had not the confidence that that I have experienced and it's just been a really pleasant surprise great that's awesome oh is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we wrap up or um yeah I mean I have a I've been advocating um through my writing 
mm-hmm. uh, mostly. So I have an article coming out on um, May 1st. I don't know when exactly this will air, but um, but yeah, on HuffPost um, about the Asian American experience living with a mental illness. And I have uh, a story coming out about compassion and what working at my parents' Chinese restaurant taught me about compassion on Hello Giggles. And um, I write on my own uh, blog, which is called livingwellhappily.com. And um, and if you want to follow me, just Michelle Yang, Y-A-N-G, writer, um, at both uh, Facebook and Instagram. And I can be found on Twitter as well. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. Um, and I hope to see a lot more coming from you in the future. Thank you so much. <laughs> no Thanks for all you do, Becky. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. All right. Thanks very much to Michelle for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, as always, you can reach me at Becky at that or over on Twitter at that one. You can find me on Facebook at that pod and on Pinterest at that podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at that B word pod. And you can find all of my previous episodes at that www.thatbword.com. And always please review and rate the podcast. I really appreciate it. And it really helps, um, especially if it's positive reviews. <laughs> all right. Thanks very much, guys. I will see you soon. All right. Bye. Stone Fruit Media.